You're listening to Potluck, the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people, culture, and brands in Asia. Hosted, as always, by Scott and Drago. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Potluck podcast. Scott, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Drago. Great to be back recording in the studio after I think we counted it seven months since we've last been in here and also just to put on some normal clothes for a change. What? You call this normal? Well, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yes indeed. We are ready, wearing our aprons, spoons at the ready and ready to stir. Come and join us and enjoy the aroma. Okay, thanks, Drago. So today we're joined by Amanda Lim. Amanda is a senior strategist at BBH Asia Pacific, based here in Singapore, working on clients including NTUC Income, Singtel, and World Vision. Now, without embarrassing her too much, Amanda was recently described by BBH's chief strategy officer as the Asia Region Effectiveness MVP, this due to the host of FA awards she has picked up in recent years, one of which we'll be touching on in more detail shortly. Now, although Drago and I often work alongside agency planners and strategists in our own roles, Amanda is actually the first strategist we've had on the show. So we're really looking forward to this one. Amanda, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Uh, really good, thank you. Although I must say, it was a bit weird getting dressed and like out of the house in the morning. It's yeah. like you have to remind yourself of the sequence of your morning routine. Yeah, it was weird. But otherwise, yeah, I'm pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Amanda. Hi. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Now let's get into it, yeah? So let's first start by talking about your life as a planner, as a strategist. Here on Potluck, we like to get into the people's, our guests' cultural life journeys, yeah? So we'd like to, with your help, to trace your journey, the journey you've been on, put your experiences into some cultural context. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So... Pretty much advertising was the kind of first job I jumped into, really. I remember on kind of the last semester when I was in university, nearly, like, I think half the class probably already had jobs, like, with the likes of P&G and Laurel and that sort of things. But then I was there kind of sitting, like, that's not really kind of my <laughs> cup of tea. Like, what am I going to do? Now, thankfully, one of my professors then basically knew like the advertising agencies pretty well. He knew kind of John and BBH and all that. And that's kind of how I got introduced to advertising. So thank God that I kind of learned about planning. And that's kind of how I basically went into it eventually. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So you were talking about how people went into solid P&G and Unilever jobs. How, when you talk to people around you about your job, to your friends or to aunties, to family members, how do you describe what you do and what's the sort of response you get from them? So when I just started, I used to kind of basically kind of go shorthand and say, oh, I just do research, right? That's kind of the easy thing to explain. But then eventually I realized my dad basically thought that I was like the person on the street, like going around <laughs> interviewing people, which obviously there's nothing wrong with that, but obviously there's kind of more than what a planner does. So since then, how I've p typically explained it is kind of just using the creatives as a reference because people typically know what a copywriter does or what an art director does. So I'll just tell them like, okay, so as strategists, what we do is we tell the creatives what to say and the creatives decide what's the best way to kind of bring that to life essentially. Yeah, so that's kind of pretty much how I explain it to people. Okay, that's great. So what do people say to that? Maybe it depends on the generation of that person or their background or what sort of response do you get? I think for the most part, people don't actually realize how much thinking goes into creating a piece of like advertising communications. 
I think they probably just think like, oh, just get some good looking people and film like a film and that's it. But obviously not. I mean, that's kind of, you need to somehow weave in the message and all that sort of things, which is obviously more complicated than what most people think. But yeah, in general, I think they're just quite surprised that so much work goes into creating a piece of advertising. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, Okay, now how about something you mentioned in an earlier conversation, something around how it's generally quite difficult to find planners in Singapore, especially young people. Can you tell us a little bit about that and if you can help us understand why you think that is? So, like I said before, I myself didn't even know that something like planning existed within kind of the advertising world. I think in Singapore, the perception is that, okay, there's the creatives and then there's the kind of client management side of the business. And no one really knows like strategy exists, partly because I think the... It's still quite a new discipline, a young discipline in Singapore compared to somewhere else in the UK, for example. So not many people know about it. I don't think it's equally valued by all the agencies here in Singapore. So I think, hence, that's kind of why it's just pretty hard to find local planners these days. And I think when it comes specifically to like young people, I think somehow there is this perception that okay, like the strategist needs to kind of know their stuff, right? And then therefore a new grad isn't going to be able to know that stuff. Like why would the new grad know more than that 45-year-old CEO? So I think in that respect, people kind of don't really give a lot of chances to young people to enter strategy. Okay, just one last thread to chase here. We wouldn't be doing our job as researchers if we didn't try and take a step back and try and put our finger on the definition of the terms we're working with here. And this is something that we often find ourselves struggling with. The definition of planner and strategist, is it the same thing? Is it different? How is it different? Maybe there's a sense of evolution here. Can you help us understand this, please? I think it's 100% the same thing. (laughs) Um, No, so I think personally, I definitely prefer the term strategist. At least it kind of sort of describes what you do. I think every time we use the word planner, people will be like, oh, so you plan the campaign or you plan the meetings. I think people kind of confuse it a lot of times with like project planning. So yeah, I think definitely strategist is a far clearer term to use. Okay, fantastic. So we know that one of the kind of building block steps of your career, Amanda, was I think when you first began with BBH, I think as part of an EDB scholarship, you actually then had a stint in BBH London, which I guess is the mothership of BBH in general. So we'd love to know more about what you took from that experience, how kind of pivotal it was in the early stages of your career. So, I mean, that was like, what, four or five years ago, I think. Mm. And I think the biggest learning point for me was seeing how agencies could be a really good strategic partner to clients Mm. beyond just advertising comms. So in BBH London, essentially, because they're a far larger agency than we are, and partly because of the demand there, they do have quite a lot of specialised departments. So I mean, I remember there was like the head of music, head of editorial, which is the sort of thing that you kind of don't really get in the Singapore agencies. Mm. I mean, there was also kind of head of UX, which was quite new to Singapore then, I think. Mm. So that was kind of like my biggest learning point, seeing how that we can genuinely be true strategic partners. Okay, fantastic. So tell me a bit more about the kind of cultural sort of difference of that, if you like, because obviously a lot's made of the BBH don't have a huge network. They obviously have select offices around the, around the world. And I guess sort of seeing that kind of the epicenter of the, was there a certain kind of BBHness? Was there a sort of, was the DNA very evident of how the agency likes to work and what its kind of principles are, that the way it approaches brand building, if you like? Yeah, definitely. To be honest, I think it was 
Okay, so the moment we stepped into the London office, like mm. it didn't feel too different to the Singapore office in terms of like the energy and vibe and all of it. So in that sense, I think quite luckily, I suppose that BBH Singapore and BBH London quite similar in that respect. But obviously, things there happen on a much bigger scale. I mean, at that point, you had four times our headcount, mm. so it was a completely different thing trying to like navigate even just internally. So yeah. Okay. Obviously, London being a kind of global epicenter of, of advertising, along with the likes of New York, for example, and Amsterdam, Tokyo, etc., we hear we hear mentioned. But how did it sort of frame for you what Singapore has to offer as a kind of creative center in its own right? Obviously, we're seeing more and more Singapore-based agencies, BBH included, picking up international awards and, if you like, kind of punching above their weight, perhaps. So. How did it sort of position what Singapore can offer vis-a-vis the likes of London in that sense? To be honest, to me, it's a bit of like apples and oranges. So yes, obviously kind of creating advertising, right, in both places. But I think the challenges are slightly different. So mm-hmm. in the UK, in London, basically, at BBH London, we had the luxury of budgets, I would say, compared to mm-hmm. you know what you get in Singapore. And I remember there was a brief we were working on. We just had to decide... Basically, we had excess time with Usain Bolt, who was the ambassador then, and we just had to figure out what was the best way to use him. Like, that was such an indulgent brief, if you think Mm. about it. Was that Virgin Media? Yeah, Yeah. it was Virgin Media. But then in Singapore, I guess it's a bit different. I think generally budget's a bit smaller, obviously, because you're a smaller country. So in that sense, I think the challenge then is to how do you really latch onto a strong insight and bring that to life in the best way possible. I mean, you don't have the luxury of spending a huge amount of budget to kind of perfect your production and all that. So I think, Mm. yeah, it's just different challenges. Okay. So in a way of effectiveness, therefore, is about obviously maximising the budget that you have and really trying to be creative with the tools available. Okay, fantastic. So I think Jago was going to talk a little bit more about the planning discipline itself and the skills that are... Yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I think it'll be some of the things you mentioned there. I think it's quite interesting for us to understand what the things are that are perhaps outside of the kind of the formal understanding of the discipline that you feel help you bring to life understanding of people and help you help brands. So something you said, we uncovered it online, if I can quote you here, and if you can help us understand what that means. So you say, dissecting the problem. So the planning job is about dissecting the problem, understanding people, diving deep into the evidence, and then making intuitive leaps. Can you help us understand a little bit what you mean by that? How this understanding of what the job involves was informed by things from your, from your life outside of work, if you will, too? And then I have a follow-up question on that too. But yeah, if we can start with that, please. Yeah, sure. So I think coming from a Singaporean background, everyone is always, well, the education system basically trains people to, okay, you always have to base things on facts. It's quite a factual, logical kind of path, I think, in Singapore. Mm. At least it used to be. I think it's a bit better now. So I think originally I was quite focused on, okay, everything I say had to be backed up with a fact. But obviously quite early on, I learned that that, wasn't true or that wasn't necessarily like the best way to approach things mm-hmm. and I think that is the general perception that people have of planets is that okay they're sitting there with like excel sheets in front of them analyzing mm-hmm. data all the time but that's completely not true I think fundamentally what a planner really needs to do is to also kind of bring empathy and curiosity and your gut to the table because if you think about it I think today everyone has the same access to the data that's out there right in that sense the only difference you can make is really how you interpret it so I think that's the difference that the planner can make and that obviously requires you to trust your gut a lot of times, yeah. Okay, amazing. So if I asked you to kind of to distill this into one 
piece of advice for planner, for a strategist to future-proof themselves, what would that be? I think to always just be curious. So don't just look at the numbers, right? Look at the story behind that. And when you look at the story behind that, to kind of just keep asking why until you feel like you've really gotten down to the root of the problem. Okay, amazing. Thanks. Yeah. I like that phrase, making intuitive leaps, because I think at some point you have to, you're never going to have the perfect data set, research to fall back on. And obviously the client's looking for your for your guidance as well, which I think doesn't always rely on, as you say, that evidence-based, that has to be there, but... Yeah, logic as well, I think, is, is, is important. Okay, so let, let's move on to applying that to some actual work, Amanda. I think we're always keen to get into the kind of practical steps people are taking in their jobs. So we know that obviously, and one of the reasons we actually got in touch with you recently was because we saw that BBH Singapore recently won an FE Silver Award for your campaign created with NTUC Income titled The Best Gift, or I think as it's been informally described, The Worst Parents. So for those of you that don't know NTUC Income, they're actually a cooperative insurer covering life, general health insurance here in Singapore, very widespread, the cover some 2 million customers in the market. Now, the best gift campaign focused on the importance of retirement planning, leaving something for the for yourself, but also for the next generation, and was very big on cultural awareness and human truth, brought to life with very bold emotional storytelling. And actually, winning an FA is notable, as these awards are about rewarding the most outstanding communication works based on proven results in meeting strategic objectives. So not just about creativity, but actually delivering hard business results. So we'll, we'll post links to both what the FE's awards are about as well as the campaign and the show notes. But Amanda, we'd love to unpack this work with you and kind of get under the skin of what made a success. So we'll break this down step by step. But let's start with the kind of the thinking, if you like, perhaps where your role comes in most importantly. So at the very beginning, how did you define this problem you were trying to solve? What kind of behaviour or mindset were you trying to shift for the client in this case? So when we got into it, essentially, we realised that Honestly, Singaporeans know what life insurance is about. They know the purpose of retirement planning. But for some reason, they just weren't kind of doing it or doing it early enough. So we found that, you know, typically Singaporeans only start planning for it when they're like 38 years old. I mean, by then you're like nearly half halfway through already, mm, mm. Um, which is really too late. So I think the challenge for us at the start was really to identify what the key barrier was, what was the barrier that we were going to address. Okay, so what do you think that barrier was then? If you, I mean, obviously touched on it there, but even thinking of, of people, you know, in our in our thirties or you know early forties, you're bang on. It's something where you know the motivation to plan long term is it's human nature. You don't necessarily feel the need. You don't know the jeopardy. You, it's hard to completely devote yourself to the future versus the now. I guess just to, for those of the, the our listeners maybe don't know Singapore so well, there's obviously a big play there on you know the sort of the generational leaving some something behind for your for your kids versus yourself, etc. How did that come into the mix as well as a sort of barrier or a solution? So one of the like number one reasons, or like excuses maybe, <laughs> that people kind of often cite is that they just don't have the money to do it, right? I mean, they're busy raising their kids, paying for their kids' education, you know, just spending on their own parents, on themselves and all that, and just spending on their house, their car, so on and so forth. So... That was really a challenge for people and we wanted to unpack that a little bit. And when we did so, it just so happened that it was a time where there was a lot of conversation about how parents are increasingly being spending a lot on the kids, right? I mean, if you think about it, I don't know, kids' birthdays today, like, it has to be like two-tier cake, a three-tier cake, like, you know, or, you know, they have to travel to the most exotic places so that they can brag about it in school. So what we realised was that 
although it's right to spend on your kids, it almost like there is a line, right? That if you cross, probably isn't the wisest financial decision. So that was basically what we decided to latch on to because culturally that was what people were talking about already anyway. Yeah, so it's really, I think this, the campaign basically centred on helping parents realise that they didn't need to be so extravagant on their kids and by doing so that they could actually use the extra money to set aside for their financial planning. Yeah, and I guess there's also an interesting flip of that where there's also a cultural expectation that your kids may effectively be looking after you or also see their duty to look after you as you age. So there's almost these two dynamics of wanting to spend for your kids today, give them the best life. But equally, you you also expect perhaps they will be the ones taking care of your retirement more than you may be. Yeah, that's a really tricky issue, really. So again, I guess for people who don't really know, I think in Singapore, there's an expectation that, or rather it's probably treated as a given that when you grow up as a kid, you are expected to support your parents in retirement, i.e. kind of give them a monthly allowance sort of thing. Now, I think because of that, parents therefore invest as much as they can in their kids, sending them to like enrichment classes, all that sorts of things, so that in hopes that their kid will be able to land a well-paying job, a respectable job, so that, you know, they're better able to support their parents in future. Now, what this means is that obviously kids get stressed out and realise that actually we did do some research and found that young Singaporeans actually didn't feel like they were able to sustain this for very long. So kind of hence why we did this whole campaign as well, kind of to let the voices of young people be heard. But yeah, it's this whole thing about filial piety. I think that sometimes stands in the way. So if parents can, you know, not see their children as a retirement plan, I think that is what will get people to think about planning for their retirement a bit earlier. Yeah. So we'll come on to the execution in just a second. Just just one last question on the kind of the upfront stage. So you so you'd identified this barrier. You had all this kind of cultural insight and understanding. I guess some of it being intuitive as a as a Singaporean, but I guess also, you know, how did you kind of package that as a sort of strategic vision for the client? How did you help the client kind of buy into? Okay this is what we see as the kind of the, what will underpin this campaign, you know, what we're trying to kind of act upon. Yeah, so I think we, we are lucky with income because as marketeer, they do have an appetite for risk. They're not afraid to kind of poke at people a little bit. Mm, mm. So I think they, they pretty much expected us, I guess, to find another way to get people to realise the need for early financial planning. So they weren't expecting us to kind of give them ideas that were kind of run of the mill. So I think that really pushed us. And yeah, I mean, thankfully, we did find a, a sweet spot. So it wasn't actually difficult to sell it into the client. Okay, fantastic. That's very interesting. As I was listening to you, I was thinking what you're saying is what our job is really is restating, reframing the obvious, the things we observe around us. But it's not about the facts there. It's about the emotional charge that informs these facts, yeah? So I think what you guys really did well is to base the campaign on this five-minute, really very emotional film I don't want to spoil it for our listeners if you haven't seen it. We'll uh, put a link to the film in the notes to the podcast. It's a really well-crafted story, and I really enjoyed it. I was a bit worried, I have to say. I was a bit concerned for the main character, for the for the groom. I thought some of the uncles might get up and throw him out of the wedding hall. But uh, So was this film that was at the core of the campaign, was it supported by other channels? Can you tell us a little bit around how you brought the story to life through the main film and also through content across other channels. Yeah, so I think what you said was pretty true about being emotionally charged. 
because if you think about it, financial planning, it's a topic, it's a category that people actively avoid. It's not like you're the Nike or, I don't know, the Louis Vuitton and whatnot, and people are just waiting there to receive and hear what you have to say. People actively avoid you, so you need to find a way to really get people's attention. So that was pretty much what the purpose of the film was. Now, obviously, we had to support it with other assets, and this is probably something that people, I think the regular folk, just kind of don't don't realise what goes behind it. But yeah, so I mean, the film was pretty much meant to get the attention of as many people as possible. And then subsequently, obviously, Income did do their job in terms of nudging people through the funnel, whether it's product posts, blog content, that sort of stuff, to really just push people through the funnel. So yeah, there were a lot of other supporting assets that went behind it. I think in particular... Like the buses and taxis, I would say, were probably my favourite part of it because I think they they really just helped sustain kind of awareness, isn't it? Like every time you see a bus goes by or an orange taxi goes by, people kind of just slightly reminded of it. Okay, awesome. Yeah. I think it's really interesting as well that obviously people will watch the video themselves but obviously it is set at a wedding and it's that's obviously such a pivotal moment in anybody's life but even especially the way they frame that generational gap giving the parents thanks or perhaps not some thanks so I guess you really were playing on emotional heartstrings in many ways I think just to tie that back to something you mentioned in terms of the funnel now not everyone maybe listening maybe knows exactly what we mean by the advertising or the, or the kind of marketing funnel but at what point of the funnel were you say you were trying to kind of hit if that makes sense so was this Surely, kind of top of the funnel, creating awareness for the brand, for the product general space? Or at what point were you trying to kind of intervene here? I guess for those who don't know what funnel is, broadly speaking, you could say there are kind of three stages to things. So A, awareness, and then you lead people to kind of consider your brand. And then ultimately, the last stage is to purchase your brand. So that's typically how you can think of it. So this film was specifically meant to target people at the awareness level. Again, right, it was meant to provoke meant to get attention there wasn't specifically like a product hard sell and say hey we get this plan for 59.90 a month that sort of thing so it was really intended to kind of spark conversation if you Mm. will okay so then that leads on to then what effectiveness looked like ultimately why you won the the FE awards so I think we looked at the result the brief kind of notes on the FE site talk about with strategy to earn coverage fuel sharing and drive people through the funnel as you mentioned income grew life insurance sales despite perhaps declining share of voice so really interesting that actually then translated into sales as you mentioned so you're starting the funnel but that's cascading down the down through those different levels if you like so can you tell me a bit more about how you knew it was working you know what does success look like in this case yeah so I think typically how you can think of a funnel is like it's a bit of a filter right if you can capture as much as you can right at the top then logically and actually kind of who comes out at the end who converts and purchases your product it will likely be bigger so I think throughout the campaign before we even had the business results like we knew like through intermediate data for example visits to the website visits to product pages these sorts of things we were seeing like an uptick in visitors and traffic and all that so we knew that there was probably a good chance right that people would eventually or rather more people would then ultimately convert so you have this very emotional storytelling building awareness is that kind of service some kind of rallying call for the frontline sales if you like is that does it translate into that at all like the way you're talking about the brand and yeah for sure so I think something that we also try to keep in mind when developing campaigns for income is can the agents use this 
mm-hmm. right? And I think, so yes, the YouTube video has about 2 million views, but actually in total, like the Facebook post especially, I think altogether we garnered actually 21 million views. Right. So the fact that it became something that people were talking about, men, advisors could easily just talk about it to their mm. customers. So in that sense, it became like, a conversation starter for the advisors and come did also translate some materials down like into WhatsApp collaterals that the advisors could kind of send to their to, to their potential customers and all that. So yeah, I mean definitely that was something that we kept in mind. Fantastic. That's amazing. It must be really fulfilling for you. You tend to see yourself as this kind of cultural detective, cultural sleuth, uncovering these really interesting stories that can help brands connect better with people. So to see this come to life and be so successful for you and the agency and the brand, it must feel really good. Do you feel emboldened now? Do you feel kind of in a better place to try and push clients to be bolder in that sense, to zoom out even more and to try and embrace these cultural truths, to try and make the way they think about the brand more culturally aware, more culturally driven? Yes and no. So (laughs) now obviously... There are many ways that advertising can work. Um, You don't always, I would say, have to create something that's provoking people um, and starting conversations. Sometimes you really just need to put out a very product-focused ad. I can definitely draw on my experience having worked on income about how we can go around. One way of going around to create culturally relevant work, but again, that's just one way. When it's talking to other clients about it, ultimately, it needs to be something that fits with their business objective and what is genuinely right for them. Not all brands kind of ask you to do that sort of work, if you get what I mean. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it depends on a lot, a lot of other factors. I guess one last thing on this campaign was looking at the subsequent work. So there's been award-winning work or successful work, you know, titled The Promise, where you looked at what we call the sandwich generation here in Singapore. And then you have the, the more recent work around protecting my child's happiness, which all have the kind of life insurance intergenerational tensions at play but it sounds like in a way the brand has become known for that style of of like in a way that's that's a core part of the brand's dna now is that style of emotional storytelling and is that something you're kind of conscious of that that's sort of the way income now communicate is, is that something you're trying to kind of continue to harness so it's definitely something that we are aware of that income has been putting out like long form mm. video assets out there so there's a saying in BBH, right, that the work should only be as long as it needs to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not like we are now going to say like, okay, the formula to creating the best work <laughs> that people are going to yeah. talk about is a five-minute film. No, so while we are aware of that, I think at the end of the day, it's making sure that we do justice to whatever insight we are tapping on and whatever the client's needs are. Yeah, I mean, we do try to think out of the box. By the end of the day, it's just finding what works for the brand. Great. Just changing gears a bit here. We'd like to focus a bit more on the role of insight in your work and what we see as kind of this hunger for insight, for big data, for big ideas too, for big stories. And we'd like to talk a little bit about something you mentioned. We understand you were involved in uh, some proprietary research on the middle class, middle-aged Singaporeans. Now, we appreciate there's so much research focused on Gen Z, millennials, if you're comfortable with with these terms. Basically, anyone under 35, as long as you're older than that, you cease to exist, basically. So a lot of the research has focused on these people. So can you first take us quickly through what you did, the methodology you applied to your research, and then we can talk about why you did it? Yeah. So actually, why we did it was exactly as you said. There was nothing we could find on middle age and middle class Singaporeans. Wow. 
So actually, just to give a bit of background on the research that we did. So we had an active brief from a client that really caught our attention because the target audience wasn't millennials or Gen Zs, right? It was a slightly older group of audiences. <laughs> and that was kind of what kind of kickstarted our interest in it. So we started out the whole research on our own after that. And basically what we did, we genuinely wanted to approach it from a very kind of human interest level, if you will. So it was very qual-based rather than quant-based, right? So we spoke one-on-one interviews with about 14 kind of middle-aged, middle-class Singaporeans. So that means kind of people from 40 to 55 years old with a household income of less than 10,000 a month. So between five to 10,000 a month, sorry. What we did supplement it with was... Basically, a dipstick survey of 500 Singaporeans about what are their perceptions of this group of people, right? The middle mm. age and the middle class. To just get a sense of what are the current perceptions out there. Sure. Of life, of the world, of like, so quite a macro picture, like kind of how they're thinking and feeling about life in general or? No, as in so like, what do other generations think of uh, okay. the middle of class? This, ah. Of this generation. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so an outside way in. Okay, okay. Cool. That's very interesting. Why did you do that? Rather than talk to these people about how they feel about themselves, you decided to ask a different cohort about how they feel about them. Why was that important for you? In a way, it was just to confirm our hypothesis, really, just to make sure that I wasn't just being in my own bubble and assuming things. So I think initially I had thought like this was probably a generation that was quite misunderstood just because people don't know much about them. And it was confirmed through the survey that we did. So we asked people you know, to describe middle-aged, middle-class Singaporeans in a few words, and how would you do that? You know, and things like, oh, they are very controlling, they are mm-hmm. boring, they are upset because, like, they're basically kind of end of their life, right? Nothing to do anymore. So it, it basically just confirmed, like, mm-hmm. you know, I guess my hypothesis. And that, I guess, gives us really an interesting start-off point to jump off on. Wow. So uh, you said it was a brief you got from a client Did the client sponsor the research? Were they involved in it? Did you then, what you came out with in the research, did that inform your work for them? Can you tell us a bit about that? Okay, so the brief picked our interest in this particular segment Mm. of the population. But obviously, kind of due to constraints of time and all that, we couldn't complete the research in time for this project. So this project kind of went on as it is, and the thing has launched already. So it was kind of just post-project that we decided to dedicate a bit more time and resource into understanding this group of audience. It's not sponsored by any client, again, because for practical reasons, that is not going to be applied to an active brief at the moment. Mm. But it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because, like, do you wait for your client to give you that audience mm-hmm. or do you find something interesting about the audience and then propose it to your client? Mm. At the end of the day, we just decided, hey, let's just give it a go and do some research of our own. Okay. So I understand the kind of content of it, the interest in that particular target is something that drove it. But as a methodology, as an approach, do you see that as an interesting lens to apply to future work too? Yeah. So this whole like just speaking to people, I think increasingly we are losing the time for that. I think over the years, what it has become is that we need to do more in a shorter amount of time and we don't have that luxury of like genuinely just speaking to people and understanding them. Mm. So I think where possible, ideally, rather than do a 2,000 people survey out there that we can actually you know, really understand people's stories as opposed to just looking at them like numbers. 
Just one last question here, something that I find really fascinating. It's a conversation I had re recently with a friend about how when we're younger, we often hold these ageist views, yeah? We think of old people as being slow, as being a bit obnoxious, a bit too much stuck in their own views. And then that, in turn, very interestingly influences about how we feel about ourselves when we get older. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. So I find your approach to looking at how other generations view this particular generation, a very interesting way to, to see not only how they are seen by others, but also how they potentially see themselves and potentially how these other generations would see themselves in their generation shoes further down the line. I think it's a very interesting lens. Why did you decide to do that? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Actually, I've never thought about it the way you just explained, <laughs> um, but I think it is very true. And I think, I don't know, I think it's like, Every generation would think that the generation before them was worse, I don't know, more boring, worse than them and all that sort of thing. I think that's kind of natural and that's kind of just human nature. I think at the end of the day, this is why we did this research as well, right? To just burst the bubble of certain people and show that, hey, you know, just because people are middle aged and middle class doesn't mean like they're boring people sitting in nine to five jobs with like no life out there. Yeah, so I, yeah, I hope this is what the research will be able to achieve. Yeah, amazing. Were there any salient points from it, Amanda, you're able to share in terms of perhaps any myths you felt that you busted or, you know, we learned this about that demographic, that generation, that perhaps some inspiring thoughts about how you could connect with them? So I think one thing that's top of mind is, I think people often think that this group of people are just busy chasing success and they're, you know, the ones that stay over time in the office, right? That sort of things. But actually what we realise is that work-life balance to them is actually far more important than to millennials, for example. And, and there, there are a lot of nuances to it, right? I think for millennials, they tend to merge work and life. So for example, if I'm into baking, I'm going to turn that into a business. So it, it, they merge it. Whereas for middle-aged, middle-class, they separate the two. Mm. So I think there's something quite nice in the fact that there's just a very pure indulgence in, in the hobbies that they pursue, mm. um, the passions that they pursue. And I think in that sense, that already makes it like, so much richer to play with, right, for a creative than, than to you know, talk about passions and hobbies to a millennial, for example. Yeah, I think it's interesting you said about millennials, or, or you know, I hate to use that phrase, but I think the <laughs> idea of like, you say that their job merges with their... But I think that's also because this whole thing around follow your passion and go with what you... I mean, I think obviously maybe the 40 to 55 didn't maybe have that perhaps luxury or that choice. It wasn't a mantra. It was basically, you know, you get your degree or your qualification and you go into a job and you start earning. Make a um, living. And perhaps you maybe re-engineer and lots of people are beginning to reassess. Obviously, the Singapore government's a big push to reskill and especially in the, in the last six months of there's a lot of push to digitize the, the workforce and, and kind of maybe, as you say zigging and zagging perhaps to take a different path but yeah that's obviously very hard when you've only known one career path or one way of working did you get a sense of like fear around that people kind of being scared of having to perhaps future proof themselves or take on a new path so that was another interesting finding of the research which was that they are probably less worried about that than you'd think okay hmm. And I think a lot of times that ties back to people wanting to climb the social ladder, isn't it? Or the social class ladder. And actually, this generation and this social class, they're quite comfortable where they are. And they're not necessarily always kind of just wanting more money, for example. Um, they do realise that more money comes at a cost, whether it's not being able to spend time with their family and things like that. So I think, yeah, I think that, that was something quite interesting to me. So yeah, it's probably actually less prevalent than you think. 
When you can access kind of primary commissioned research or or even third party reports which may or may not exist, what kind of hacks or tools would you say you employ Amanda Light, for example, if you had a new junior planner coming onto the team, how might you kind of advise them to actually go about conducting their own research if, if they don't have any kind of budget available or what are the ways you can kind of garner that insight? So three things come to mind. A, don't be afraid to approach people. I think because we are in Singapore and the context is that we are just generally a bit more shy to approach people. And obviously that was something I had to overcome initially as well, right? Like just walking on the streets and walking up to people. Sometimes I, I, I think when you're young, what you can do and something that I used is to just pretend you're a student and just doing some research. People, <laughs> people let their guard down yeah, sure. uh, when you tell them you're a student. <laughs> so yeah, you can leverage that. But yeah, don't be afraid to approach people, honestly. Like people aren't going to remember you. They're not going to think back like in 30 years. Oh yeah, there was this weird person who came and asked me about this question. Like people won't. So just go out there and ask people questions. Now secondly is... Actually, the next two are what I think have been the most useful hacks or tools, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when, when talking to people, essentially. So the first one being, don't just notice what people say, but notice what they don't say as well. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that sometimes can also reveal a lot of things that people themselves may not be very conscious of. Now, the third thing is the power of silence. So this is something I, I guess I learned quite recently, but the moment you stop talking the more likely that people will then just go on elaborating about it themselves. And that's actually usually where the meat comes out of it. Yeah. So I think like there is value getting in touch with a proper market research agency, you know, and getting them to recruit people, right? But I think just over time, you do realise that the sort of people that respond to such things, like they feel like, I don't know, I don't know what you call it, but like, you know that they know how to answer questions. Mm. And I think that kind of gets in the way a little bit. Whereas mm. if people are kind of caught off guard, kind of in their natural environment, I think that that oftentimes kind of just makes what they say a bit more interesting and richer for us. Okay. A bit more spontaneous. Yeah. Okay. That's we also hear kind of, you know, through the cracks that actually the the reality of being able to rely on data is perhaps not as true, if you like, as it's maybe presented and maybe either an absence of client driven data or maybe an absence of, of useful third-party data. So what do you think about the gap there in terms of what you can meaningfully access and, and what you perhaps lack as a planner, as a strategist? Yeah, I think the thing about what you said about client data, them having that data, accurate data, um, that is a big barrier in Singapore. Yeah, I think again, it just goes back to how I think marketing and advertising is just a little bit, it's like one step behind the UK, for example. So I remember when I was in BBH London, every other client would commission like an econometrics study and that's what really identifies what drives your sales at the end of the day. Okay. Whereas in Singapore, like, I've never heard any <laughs> client request for it before and I don't even know if there are agencies here who do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's definitely one of the gap. I think big data can be useful. So going back to income again, actually another campaign we did for them for their travel insurance was basically kind of data-driven. So what we did was we worked with Google and based on, you know, people's searches on the internet, the kind of videos they're watching on YouTube and all other signals that they had throughout the entire Google network, compiled them and basically just served them different ads based on who we think that profile is like. Mm. So I think in that sense, that was very helpful. But at the end of the day, I think... Like what I said before, right? everyone has kind of the same access to the data. So it also really depends on how you interpret it to make a difference to people. And I think it's just one of the ways right, that you can apply it, that it can help a strategist. But at the end of the day, 
yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just feel oftentimes you need to also know the story behind the numbers. Do you see that as part of your own role to be able to kind of manipulate, to handle, to make sense of the data? Or are agencies now employing people you feel that have that specialist skill set to be a data scientist or to be a data cruncher, if you like? Is that something you feel is kind of left to the planning department or do you feel you have specialist support there? I think to a certain extent, being a planner, you need to be comfortable handling uh, numbers. I mean, you don't need to be like the geekiest mathematician, Mm. but I think it helps. That's it. I think over the years, definitely agencies are dedicating more people to, you know, specifically to the area of data and and managing that. Mm -hmm. So like even at BBH, we do have a data strategist as well. So he's kind of more focused on the whole kind of data space of things. So that definitely helps us. And I think that's good because then it it divvy-ups the job, isn't it? So there's one person looking at the hard facts and then there's another one looking at the softer side of things Mm. and then you bring them together to create kind of the best work that you can. Yeah, Yeah, I think just just one last last question on that before (laughs) I wanted to ask ask about experience because that's obviously the term we're hearing used more and more. We did an episode with Andrew out from Atink talking about the experience economy and obviously that seems to be the way everyone's talking about the overall brand experience. I mean, do you see that as something that you obviously need to be kind of very tuned into? Do you feel that's a core part of what clients look from you as well in terms of thinking about that overall brand experience? I think increasingly, yes. I'd say maybe five years ago, people weren't really looking at that yet, but definitely today, people are thinking about that. And obviously, as a brand strategist, you play quite a key role in that because you need to ensure that the brand comes across as that same persona throughout the entire journey. So while you may have your CX specialist and whatnot, at the end of the day, you need to ensure, like, you just need to be that brand guardian, essentially, and ensure that everything is right for that brand. So I think it's time to wrap things up, Amanda. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to stir the pot with us today, be our first studio guest since, I think, uh, March, if, if we were it's a long time. back. Hopefully you've enjoyed yourself, Amanda. Yeah, thank you for having me. No yeah, problem. Fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing all these amazing ingredients and flavours that will remain with us as we keep on stirring. I think we'll be bringing season one of Potluck to a close with a final episode coming soon. So please keep your aprons on, spoons at the ready, and we'll be back very soon. Thank you for tuning in. And if you like what you hear and you aren't too sick of Drago's uh, kitchen-based puns, then uh, please click subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. In the meantime, keep keep it it brewing. brewing.